0: You're never going to figure out sports, but what makes it so fun is that it's a question you can live within. Yeah. And I think that finding kids a question they can perhaps live within might be a step in the right direction to enfranchising them to participate on their terms and not their parents or their teachers or their friends. Yeah. Because when, when you know, as you get older, as you know, each, that layer of support dissipates with each stage in life, and you have to be able, I don't think you have to, but I think there's a lot more possibility available to you if you make the choice to do things on your terms. <laughs>
1: Welcome to the Offball Podcast. My name is Martin Reeder. I'm a 2012 Beach Volleyball Olympian, Nike trainer, and movement leader. The Off Ball Podcast is the start of a conversation to go way, way off of the ball and deep into personal development and how to maximize the vessel of sport in a way to improve your life, deepen your pursuits, and increase your emotional fulfillment. Today's conversation is exactly that. I chat with my man, primetime Johnny Castles, on some incredibly important conversations and topics that really aren't being had right now. Johnny's probably the best person I have ever heard articulate what he's going to throw down today. I'm going to leave it to him to really build on the concepts, but we're talking accountability. We're talking getting over the victim's story, living life from the field and not from the stands and finding that emotional fulfillment on your own terms so that you can buy into the process and maximize everything you've got going on in your life. Today is an exceptional conversation, and I invite you to share this with your coaches, fellow parents or fellow athletes because we all need to be having this there's so much here press pause don't be shy to repeat some of these things i'm serious when i say this conversation is integral but it's missing so let's introduce it stoked to have you hear what my boy johnny castle's got to say enjoy Welcome to the Off Ball Podcast. Today's guest is Johnny Castles, CEO, El Presidente, head coach of Castles Tutoring, and just an all-around boss. Welcome, Johnny.
0: Appreciate you having me on, Martin. It's uh, it's an honor and a pleasure.
1: So today we're going to cover some pretty deep things, which I'm so excited about. But first, let's go into how we first met each other because there's a bit of a backstory. I caught your mullet in the gym about a year ago and legitimately just ask where you played, knowing that you played hockey somewhere, somehow.
0: Well, you know, Martin, as a, as a big 80s hair rock fan and uh, you know, always trying to sort of fly the flag of hair metal, I uh, tend to rock a bit of a mullet. And I think I was probably the only guy in that you know, gym on that day who looked like he might've been an extra from a Motley Crue music video. And uh, I, I, you know, I'd seen you in the gym doing some pretty crazy mobility stuff, throwing up some pretty crazy weight. And, uh, you know, I'd always kept to myself. And uh, I remember you came up to me and you're like, so, where do you play hockey? I was kind of, thought you might ask me where I play guitar or whatever, but uh, yeah, you know, from that moment on, uh, it's, been a, it's been an awesome friendship, a hell of a relationship. And I think you and I have done some pretty crazy real deadlifts, but some incredible mental deadlifts as well. All
1: about those mental deadlifts. So Johnny and I had to actually institute a five-minute maximum whenever we saw each other at the gym because it was just dialogue for days. And so let's, Commence that dialogue here. And now we don't need that five minute max. So, so let's go deep. Johnny introduced me to a book and that book is called winning through enlightenment. That changed a lot of things for me, Johnny. And I want to give you that you definitely changed a lot for me. Can you say why you shared that book with me?
0: You know, it was funny when I was, uh, 16, 17 years of age, uh, you know, like a lot of young men, I had experienced a lot of difficulty navigating school in a way that yielded what we could call emotional fulfillment. Um, I really felt that my participation in school put me at the mercy of my circumstances and there's no way I would have articulated it that way at 16, 17 years of age, um, it was still nonetheless an issue that showed through in my grades and just my involvement. Uh, My father, who's a very spiritual, incredibly bright man, had observed this, and I I think he had been heavily impacted by this book, uh, you know, Winning Through Enlightenment, and he passed it on to me. And I think the value in that book and where it kind of played into my life is it really prompted me to take accountability for the stories I told myself about what was happening in my life. And as a teenager, that's a realm of of, of knowledge that you have no context for. So to call it, you know, uh, world-changing would be an understatement.
1: It rocked my world. It, I would say, was really the the opening for me of diving into where I'm at now for the off-ball, off-ball athlete. Now, let's talk about how you apply that. You're currently a owner of a business that does tutoring for youth, but that's an understatement. I think that underserves what it is that you exactly do because I know you make a massive impact in people's lives. Can you just talk about what it is that you do, Cass, and how you approach that?
0: Absolutely. Um, You know, I really leverage my own experience going through the school system in the sense that my problems in school had little to do with mental or intellectual capital, um, understanding content, and had everything to do with the way in which I held school. And what I mean by the way I held school, the context within which I held school, Um, you know, as I said, I was very much someone who bought into the idea that I was at the mercy of my circumstances, and, you know, I'm sure we'll have an opportunity to go into that further, but for a lot of the kids that I work with, it's not necessarily just explaining to them how to do math or how to do science or how to do English. It's about helping them establish, A, how they can be accountable for their narrative, B, once they achieve that accountability, what they can do practically to make the changes that then C, lead to a certain emotional fulfillment from participating in the process that school, participating on their own terms, not for me, not for their parents, not for their teachers, but for themselves, which is something that's going to carry them through the rest of their lives.
1: So, you're the first person that really started publicly, to me, anyways, speaking about this on their own terms bit. Yeah. Giving kids to- autonomy, allowing them to participate in the decision making of a process, or at least letting them know and giving them the context that by making a decision, of yes or no, that they are participating in their own life. Absolutely. Which, which blew my mind. That floored me. And since then, it's just been nothing but that. I just came back from Ontario, uh, coaches symposium for volleyball this last weekend. And so much of the dialogue was, how do we get kids to participate on their own terms? How can we invite them to be a part of the experience? Because it's a challenging time. Can you talk to me a little bit about how you approach doing that with your students?
0: Absolutely. It's... Um... The first thing I would say is, one of the most fundamental distinctions I like to buy into is, you know, there's things that you know you don't know, and there's things you don't know you don't know. (laughs) And when you're an adolescent, you know, male or female, although I would say girls, to be perfectly honest, are a little more cognizant of what's going on around them at that age than boys, um, that world of what you don't know you don't know is, is massive. And... You know the the metaphors that people like to use are so inappropriate. Like for example, uncharted waters. You know, um, that's really not an appropriate metaphor because because we're not even we're not even in water anymore. When it's what you don't know, you don't know. This is a completely and totally different domain. And what I'm essentially trying to do for kids is create context. That's the first thing, and an, an appreciation for what the meaning of context is especially as a 15- or 16-year-old boy or girl, because that's, again, entering into a domain of what you don't know, you don't know. When we talk about participating on their own terms, I find what's most effective is, first of all, getting them to appreciate their role in creating their experience. Mm. That's imperative to getting them to a place where they can start appreciating that oh, this is not on my teacher's terms, this is on my terms. So for example, if you're know if you sitting at your desk and you're doing your economics notes and you're not having a good time doing it, well take a minute and sit back and ask, ask yourself, who's creating the experience of this moment right here? Is it the textbook? Is it the notebook? Is it the pencil? Is it the light? Absolutely not. It's apocryphal to think that those inanimate objects are creating the experience. You're the one who's creating the experience and Perhaps one of the most profound lines, and I'm probably going to botch it here a little bit, but from Smotherman's book is, it's not a matter of whether kids are responsible for their lives. It's whether they're willing to accept that they're responsible for their lives. Mm. And getting them to take accountability for their experience of life is a crucial first step for them to take it on as theirs. Yeah, For them to take ownership. Yeah,
1: that I've gone to a few different speaking engagements really highlighting the responsibility piece I actually, I think they might have just competed but the Olympic uh, Canadian men's sledge hockey team went and talked to them about responsibility you must be responsible for the space that you take up mentally and physically Absolutely. do you then create space for other people or do you take space away from other people and do you create space for yourself or you close yourself off from space you're responsible for that and then within that, there's the blame game of, of really putting it on other people and, once again, not taking responsibility for that. By not taking responsibility, you don't really give yourself an opportunity for that growth, right, 100%. the second you close that off. So let's dive a little bit deeper into the responsibility piece just because we're here right now. Totally. How do you communicate that in a way that – gets the light bulb on
0: and that's the million dollar question because it's so different for so many kids Um, very often I like to leverage my own experience and explain to them first and foremost my story of going through schooling and the funny thing was is um, when I was 13 14 years of age um, the extent of my aliveness was predicated on my circumstances And what I mean by that was um, when I was in school, you know, my teachers were bad. They didn't like me. They saw me as a hockey player who didn't care. These were all narratives that I created, but I was wholly, I wasn't cognizant of the fact that I was creating them. And the funny thing was, when I started reading this book, I started to appreciate that these were not objective recapitulations of what was happening. These were stories I told myself. So in terms of reaching kids, one of the most fundamental relationships they have in their life is with their parents. And by no means do I seek to undermine a child-parent relationship, but that's very fertile ground where the concept of a narrative shows up. Hmm. And it can be, honestly, in, in a very hysterically simplistic context, going out on the weekend, being grounded, having their smartphone taken away. Just, you know, I don't like to tread into sort of very contentious waters right off the bat, but getting them to take accountability for the idea. So, for example, I was working with a student just a few weeks ago who had his phone taken away, and you can imagine the narrative. Yeah, it's so ridiculous, JC, like, you know, I got my parents, busted my balls, you know, they took my phone away, and it was like, for no good reason. I'm like, okay, well, let's talk about that. What do you mean, for no good reason? Well, you know, I said I was going to be home at 12.30 and I got home at 1.30 and I was fine and it wasn't that big of a deal. I got home safe. Yeah, but you said you'd be home at 12.30. Yeah, yeah, but like what's the big deal? It's only an hour. Well, let's take, let's take a moment here. The funny thing is, is you've chosen and you've made a choice here to put yourself in the role of a victim in this situation. You said you would be home at 12.30 and you were home at 1.30. Are you creating a context of accountability for yourself here? Or are you creating a context of deferring accountability? What did you say and what did you do? And sometimes it's simple elucidations like that that get kids to appreciate like, whoa, pardon the language, remember? I guess I fucked up, you know what I mean? So my thing was um, you can use these very simple interactive moments with people they care about as opportunities to show them that they have a role in what's happening. Hmm. And the breaking open can be astounding for these kids. They see it in the way that they narrate their experience with their teachers. You know, I had a kid who was a hockey player who thought all of it just like myself. Yeah, teachers think I'm stupid because I'm a hockey player. No basis for that claim. None whatsoever. Just a narrative that supports his position as a victim. And when you're a victim, you
1: get to wholly defer
0: any and all accountability. (laughs)
1: <laughs> that's so huge right there. Oh, it's it is so huge. And so I'm going to take that one step further. And now we're still kind of living in the, the winning through enlightenment book. So if all of these subjects are interesting to the listener, by all means, pick this book up. It took me a while to, to source it out cause it's an old copy, but uh, it, there's so much there. So let's go one layer deeper and it talks about being right. Yes. The book talks about holding on to being right. And There was a time where that served us because being right meant that we could survive. Totally. But that was maybe 100,000 years ago or so. (laughs) Now, when you hold on to that narrative just to be right, well, you're robbing yourself of of an opportunity to actually make use of the situation. So talk to me about how you handle the whole concept of I'm holding on to being right because I want to be right versus, wait a minute, there's something else out there.
0: You know, One of the analogies I like to use with kids, Barton, is one of a computer. You have hardware and you have software. And the human brain is very much like a computer in that regard, that you come pre-programmed into this space of being with a mind that seeks to survive. That's undeniable. Anytime you're threatened, you feel it. It kicks in, that fight-or-flight mechanism. But also the notion of being right. You and I have talked about this on a multitude of occasions where you can actually have a physiological reaction to being told you're not right. Mm. You know, your blood pressure increases, you start secreting adrenaline. We've all had this when we've gotten to an argument with someone, a very serious argument. And it's amazing that no one in the school system is teaching kids how to understand this mechanism. Because the funny thing is, is that in the context of an argument, it's very overt and it's very obvious that it happens. And people even, you know, they apologize and they reconcile. But within the context of the day-to-day life and the decisions that you make, it's not made apparent to kids that being right is a fundamental precept of the human mind that governs so many of the positions that we take on a day-to-day basis. And just to give you an example, again, like, you know, that student I was working with, you know, right or wrong doesn't really get us to home plate Mm -hmm. in any way, shape, or form. But what it does do is it allows you, by buying into that dichotomy of right or wrong, to take a position, which can then reinforce the idea of you being a victim or you being accountable. So when we talk about being right, in most of my professional existence, I've seen that being right merely is used as a crutch to substantiate the position that you are a victim of your circumstances.
1: (laughs) might have to replay that if you're listening because that's a beauty, uh, but so much there. And and where I have really gone with that as a coach and a leader now is whenever I'm talking in a situation and trying to resolve something or trying to present something, I'm now so much more aware of, am I trying to be right for them? Am I trying to project my shit onto them so that I'm now right and make them go through my journey? And so I... I've come through this process of understanding, wow, as a coach, the less I'm involved, the more autonomy I give them, the more I just ask the right questions. It's not about me, but I wanted to make it about me, but it's not. And so this whole thing of being right, we're all just trying to be right all the time, correct?
0: It, it, you're absolutely right. It's beautiful hearing <laughs> you say that. Honestly, my- Oh, I'm, am
1: I, wait, wait. I'm trying to be right on this one. <laughs> <laughs> well,
0: like honestly, man, it's beautiful to hear you say that because... You know, one of the things, going back to that sort of computer metaphor, the sort of ineluctable reality is that you're pre-programmed with this. And as you said, we are all trying to be right. But the funny thing is, is that if you can create a context for that to show up in such a way that it's not anything more than just mental machinery, it becomes, you know, one of my favorite lines is, you know, the first step to being enlightened is lightening up. And when it comes to right and wrong, I can't think of a more applicable aphorism than that. Mm. Is that when you can create the context for right and wrong to show up merely as mental machinery at work, it loses all of its contentious value. It's so funny that since reading that book, um, which was, you know, God, what, uh, 15 years ago now almost, um, my ability to get into arguments and fight with people... Um, has really diminished. And that's not because I'm I'm, I'm meditating on a mountaintop, but as you just said, you you create a cognizance of how meaningless the terms right and wrong are at a most fundamental level. Mm -hmm. And when you lose that personal relevance for right and wrong, there's no acrimony because you just accept it for what it is as opposed to what you think it is.
1: Brilliant. So let's step away from this. Let's go back. I want to talk about your upbringing. Let's talk about your journey through, let's say, sport and then school and, and coming back into what I would say you're, you're an educator, not necessarily through the Canadian education system, but you created your own system. Let's go back here, Johnny. So as a young adolescent hockey player, you know where were you at, man? Let's talk about the 13-year-old Johnny.
0: You know, I was uh, I was getting into trouble regularly um, with my parents, uh, with the authorities on occasion, um, with my teammates. Uh, You know, as a young athlete, I was playing I was playing triple A hockey in Toronto, which is, uh, you know, it's a fairly competitive domain Um, academically. um, Let's say we'll choose 13 because that's the age you specified. Um, I was underachieving by a, a biblical margin. <laughs> you know, like you, you take a look at my my report cards and my dad would just be like, these, these, are, these can't be your averages. These look like your shoe sizes growing up. You know what I mean? So um, it, it, it was a bad scene. But the funny thing was, is I had no context at that point in my life to appreciate it as anything more than what I thought what it was. I I didn't, you know, I'm I'm a fervid believer that sometimes you're not cognizant of the fact you're making a choice, but you're making a choice. Mm. And no one had shown that to me. And, you know, athletically, I was dragging my ass around out there. I was going to practices with no intention. I was going to games with no intention. If we had a game on a Friday night, I was dreading that. When I showed up to school, I showed up with no purpose. No integrity. There was absolutely no integrity that motivated my participation in honestly anything I did.
1: Was that because you weren't made aware of it or just you were that's where you're at? You're just we're in that situation. You know, it's
0: always interesting when you're analyzing the situation after the fact. Um, you know, I would like to think it was just a lack of awareness because as soon as I did become aware of it, my world turned upside down. And as I told you, that's why I shared that book with you because, um, It totally turned things upside down. I went from being, you know, a high, you know, mid to high 70s student to a low 90s student. Um, You know, from a hockey perspective, I had gone from accepting the fact that I probably wouldn't play beyond high school to having the opportunity to interact with NCAA Division One programs, OHL teams, um, Division Three programs in the NCAA. Um, academically, you know, I, I think most people thought I was probably going to be doing five years in a federal penitentiary and not four years at a <laughs> university. And uh, I remember I got waitlisted at Princeton my senior year, which was, uh, I think, shocking to everybody, including the administration in my school. Um, but you know, I, I think it would have been a lack of an awareness just because of how quickly things turned around when I did
1: become cognizant of it. Hmm. So it, this is a word, I, either it was early in the interview or it was prior to as we were discussing, but accountability. Were you, was there any accountability for the space that you were taking up as a human being there? And, and let's talk about w- at what point in time did you take ownership or accountability of, holy smokes, I'm in this situation... I could probably do something better than what I'm doing right now. You know,
0: early on, there was none. As I told you, my aliveness was predicated purely upon my perception of my circumstances. And when you buy into that as a mode of living, the only way things change is if the circumstances change. And that puts you in a position where you have absolutely no power. Now again, at 13 years of age, I wouldn't have, uh, you know, articulated it that way. But that was the premise, that was the guiding principle that defined my existence. Mm. Um, it was, it really was kind of a, a sad space um, to be in. Um, not that I had any real depression. It's again, in retrospect, you look back on it, and it was just I was missing out on so many opportunities. And the funny thing was, as I mentioned, I read that book and. I started just appreciating this narrative, this very elaborate narrative I'd constructed. And the funny thing was, is when it comes down to it, just, you know, for the purposes of conversation, a bit of a simplification, but the narrative totally supported the position that I was a victim. You know, when I played hockey, I was never an overly physical player. So what did I focus on? Yeah, I'm not getting ice time because the coach doesn't like that I'm not physical enough. You know, as a student, you know what? All the teachers are judging me because they think that I take hockey too seriously. And and it was funny. I had these two diametrically opposed narratives. One said I wasn't a good hockey player, not getting any ice time. And the (laughs) other was that the teachers thought I was a sick hockey player, so I wasn't. Do you know what? But what did it do? It put me in the position of a victim. And the funny thing is, is when you're a victim... You have no accountability. That's one of the things about illness, for example, why people love sharing the idea when they get sick, even if it's a cold or a flu. You're, you know, people don't hold you accountable to deadlines. People don't hold you accountable to honoring your obligations. You're no longer your word because you're sick. And that was one of the first places that I kind of saw that was the Hmm. idea is that when you're sick, it's this moment where everybody loves to be a victim and defer accountability. Hmm. And I suddenly realized that I was doing that when I was one hundred percent (laughs) healthy.
1: Wow. So let's let's talk a little bit about your circumstances because by no means was it easy for you. Your your home life was was an interesting one. So share that as as you feel comfortable, just to give the audience a a bit of an understanding of where you're coming from.
0: Yeah, it was. uh, You know, again, my father was an incredibly bright man. He was compassionate. He was caring. um, But he was that prototypical hockey dad. It was the type of situation where if I didn't play well, you know. uh, I was a little concerned about that car ride home, you know. And it was nothing crazy, but when you live in that space as a 12- or 13-year-old, um, it can it, it can be scary and it can be very, it's disempowering because you're not, you know, uh, Werner Erhard is someone who I really buy into the sort of, Um, his teachings Uh, he was a very sort of I don't don't even know what you would call him to be perfectly honest because he wasn't a psychologist he wasn't a psychiatrist he was almost a a popular theorist in the 70s and he has this beautiful distinction between um, empowering and force and my dad very much employed force to try and get me to play well in sports as opposed Mm. to empowering me to play well and the way he draws that distinction is force is when you compel someone to do something because of a threat for example and empowering is creating the space for somebody's actions to show up. And living in a space where you're at the whim of somebody's force is, is tough. Mm-hmm. You know, um, at home, there wasn't a lot of concern about my academic achievement. There seemed to be a little bit of apathy about it. And I don't know if that's because my parents thought that I had the intellectual capital to pull myself out of it. Or if, you know, a troubled marriage was the preoccupation and... We were there and we were healthy, and that was about the extent of the concern. Um, To be honest, a lot of my experience shapes my practice, and that's because I was outside of the rink, really left to my own devices. Hmm. And that's not that this is not me playing a victim act for my parents. Let me be clear on that, because they did their job. I was healthy. I was went to a great school. I lived in a great neighborhood. They did absolutely everything they can be expected to do, but nonetheless. In certain situations when you live in a space where what you don't know you don't know is so big, um, that guidance and that involvement can be quite helpful. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't think that necessarily there was as much of that as perhaps I needed, given the evidence of, you know, in, interacting with the authorities the way I did, my grades, uh, what was going on at the rank. Um but at the same time, that was a profoundly impactful experience because what it did do is it sort of sowed the seeds for that incredible focus on autonomy and my role in my situation and how I practice with my kids that I work with and how they can appreciate their role in their
1: situation. Hmm. You mentioned the authorities and, and having some fun. Were <laughs> you seeking? Were you overtly seeking love and attention? Was that a, an attention grabber getter? Were you looking for for love through that? Like, can you just reference that for, for a minute? Just of what was course. that about?
0: I when you when you say that, that's exactly what I think it was. Um, you know, socially, I, I had friends, I went out, but I think that I was looking for validation. And, you know, the idea was Making people laugh has always been a thing of mine And in some cases, you know, to sort of adopt the euphemism I took it too far And I couldn't agree with you more That it was about earning the approval of other people On some level, my father My father used to glorify his little rascals-esque pranks That he would pull when he was in prep school You know, putting flour in the organ You know, saran wrapping the ladies' washrooms You know what I mean? Like, things like that just and and you hear that as a young kid, and you know you're in this sort of contentious situation when it comes to the rink, and maybe on some level, I was trying to earn my father's approval. By so,
1: so there was some someone deep inside of you who recognized that that's how he could love you, and and that's how a, a way that you could seek love from him. Yep. And so you you went for it. Gotcha. That's it. Yeah,
0: I would guess. I mean, it it, 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 it makes sense. And that would have been a situation where some a little bit of guidance, <laughs> you, know, you know what I mean, as opposed to uh, the officers from Division Fifty Three dragging me home. You know what I mean.
1: Well, let, let's move it to the transformation here, and yeah. and not this is not even a transformation story. It's it's about you as a young young boy, young man, yep. all of a sudden taking ownership for yourself, and and. You know, I, I see a lot of youth, a lot of kids, a lot of university students that that are not aware that they can create their own story, that they're one hundred percent in charge of what's going on in their lives. <clears throat> and I don't know if it's they're just waiting for someone to do something, or they don't know that they need to take the initiative to do certain things. But there's a lot of people that are sitting there idly, but they don't know that they're sitting there idly, and they're just thinking that things are going to happen. So talk me through. All of a sudden, now you let's just say you read this book. where Let's maybe use that as that single point. What happened for you to take total ownership of your life and your pursuits? And, and let's talk about the transformation. And, and I guess what happened in your life after that. Well, the
0: first thing I remember it would have been a. I think it was a summer night in July. As I think I mentioned, to you, my dad gave me that book the summer between grade eleven and grade twelve, so between junior and senior year. Of high
1: and school. you know what? I'm going to pause because. Oftentimes, we can try to be right and hand a kid a book because we're trying to be right. And all of a sudden, that person is going to throw that book out the window. How was that book introduced to you? Because that's important. Because you must have felt at some point in time that, that it was good for you to read that book.
0: You know, what? it's interesting, too. Because in my work, I have so many kids who just absolutely, vehemently refuse to listen to their parents. And some of the parents are incredibly bright people. University professors, you know, um, accomplished corporate figures. But the guy who listens to Def Leppard and rides a bicycle when it's minus thirty outside is the voice of reason. And it just—he's absolutely- <laughs> referring to himself, ladies exactly. and gentlemen. Just, just <laughs> so clear, I'm the idiot who rides his bike. You know, when you see a snowstorm and you're like, "Look at this idiot cyclist!" Like that's me. Um, but the funny thing was, is my father, to his credit, when he did get involved, he was very clear, and probably because he prescribed to a lot of the same, um, you know, belief structures that you and I do he didn't hand it to me saying, you need to read this, it's going gonna, it's gonna to change your life. Because right away, it wouldn't have changed my life if mm-hmm. that's the way he had handed it off to me. He said to me, he handed it to me, and he said, I think this book is going to present to you some possibilities you may never have considered. Interesting. And that was, okay. He's not telling me to read it, so I get to read it on my own terms. And one of the things you and I have talked about in the context of just the smartphone world is how young men are seeking, yearning for autonomy. And we're in a space, we're in a world now where that sense of autonomy is getting chipped away at. You and I, you know, when we grew up, we had it in the context of going out to meet our friends and shoot hoops. We could talk about whatever we wanted. We, could, we were outside, we were in the world, and it was just us and the boys. And there was that sense of autonomy, that sense of freedom. And my dad handing the book to me that way, Put the ball in my court, and I felt like I was an autonomous, you know, independent being making a choice. Mm -hmm. Again, I wouldn't have said it that way, but I remember when he handed it to me that way, it was just, all right.
1: There was some intrigue there, right? There was an invitation, there was some mystique.
0: That's exactly. And it wasn't, do this, read it. I know better than you do. Yeah. He appreciated the fact that our domains of understanding were very different you know, he had a whole life worth of wisdom and experience and I was 16 years old. I had the antithesis to that. Mm -hmm. So it was just, you know, I'm inviting you to consider the possibility that this book may open things up for you a little bit.
1: So grade 12.
0: Yeah, big year, big year. That was a total turnaround. Um, You know, you asked Martin about the mechanisms whereby that transformation started to occur. One of the more effective tools that i like to use with my kids is is one thing that i've noticed media has sort of perpetuated the idea that you just got to show up Mm. when you watch a movie or a tv show things always happen for the protagonist and it's kind of an interesting thing because that sort of indoctrinated kids with the idea that all they got to do is show up they'll get found they'll get you know they'll get that break they'll get that bounce and the funny thing was, and the funny thing is, is as I live and breathe with each day, you realize that that is absolutely not the case. You can think it's the case, but as you and I have discussed, bike down or drive down to Lake Ontario at 3 in the morning and yell <laughs> at the top of your lungs that those are, that's the way things should be and see what happens and see what indifference the whole world has to that idea of what you think it should be. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the most effective mechanisms that I used... And I'm kind of proud of myself for devising this at such a young age. Um, I used to imagine myself watching myself in a movie theater. So if I was watching Johnny Castles, you know, prepping for a big game and he was having a hamburger, I'm just throwing that out there. He wasn't, you know, sticking to, like, his diet plan on game day. Well, the Johnny Castles in the theater would be like, what are you doing, you idiot? Like, it's game day. you got to be ready to play. Like, why are you making this choice? And for some reason... From the context of being in the stands, as that's a distinction you and I have gotten, I got that as a note that we're going to dive into yeah. after,
1: so keep on going. Yeah. Let- so
0: From the context of being in the audience, let's say, of this movie theater, it became a lot easier to critique the choices I was making, whereas when I was the character on screen, there was no critiquing to be done because it was just kind of happening. And that distinction that I had created in this sort of hypothetical scenario was incredibly elucidating for the choices I needed to make to put myself in the position I wanted to be in. So that was honestly a huge first step was realizing after going through this book, okay, so now this is, this is our movie. We are the projector. So what do we want to project? And I needed to create that distinction between what was on the screen and me and the audience to effectively wrap my head around this is what we need to do to mm-hmm. derive that sense of satisfaction from playing on the varsity hockey team at my high school or writing that physics test during second period.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. So as you start to turn things around for yourself, where were your sights beforehand? And then all of a sudden, once you realize that you had some skill, you had some intelligence that you just weren't tapped into, what then happened to... Where you wanted to go in life? Like, talk to me a little bit about the trajectory that you saw for yourself.
0: You know what's really interesting because I deal with this with kids um, all the time. The funny thing is, the only thing that changed for me was the now, and hmm. what I mean by that was, you'd think that oh wow, I'm I'm, I'm scoring 80s and 90s at a really challenging you know, prep school. Um, you know, I'm, I'm playing on the varsity hockey team. and I'm having U.S. colleges asked to talk to me after my games. You know what I mean? You would think that you would have these sort of grandiose ambitions of, you know, the world is my oyster and it's just a matter of me sort of stepping forward. Um, but that that never really showed up. It was my now that changed in the sense that Reading that book and creating these mechanisms whereby I could control my decisions and control what I was doing in terms of how I perceived my teachers, the challenge of a test, the challenge of a big game, that's really the only thing that changed. You know, I wish I could tell you that as soon as this opened up, as I said, that it was, you know, I want to play Division One college hockey. I want to, uh, I want to go to Princeton. I had no idea where I wanted to go to school until the applications got submitted. And I'm like, well, i got to get into one of these six places because like, like, that's where i got to think i got to go. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. And the funny thing is, is that's been one of the more effective tools that I've been trying to work with with a lot of kids is the notion of things showing up in the now. As you and I as adults, that's a very adult context-oriented question. And what I mean by that is you have the experience of having gone through it all so, when you can create a timeline of sixteen to twenty four when you had the ambition and you realized the ambition, mm-hmm. especially yourself, Martin as a highly accomplished athlete
1: and you, you know what it's i i'm trying to think about it as you say it for myself and and I knew nothing man you know i I really knew very little. I had these grandiose thoughts that I was going to go play university indoor volleyball down in the states. I had no idea how that was going to happen. I had no idea how to make that happen, and I did not make that happen. That was just a silly thing that I told myself as of grade 10, thinking that I wanted to play for UCLA because it was close to a beach. (laughs) It didn't happen, but it was this silly thing that I told myself, and then I wound up just going to college and and playing for Camosin College on Vancouver Island. I was nowhere near mature enough to do anything with my life at 17 beyond – you know, be the, the second power hitter for the Camosan College and figure out how to lift twenty pound dumbbells. Like I legitimately was a pipsqueak. <laughs> but the story that I told myself and what wound up happening were were two totally different things. So I'm trying to like buy into this and, and feel it out and like I had no idea how to make any of this happen.
0: That's it and that's exactly it. And it's so you know, and I, and, I, and I won't indulge this tangent, but that is the fundamental issue with education when it, comes empower, when it comes to empowering kids to participate. Is that concept of a timeline that you as an adult can create because you had yourself at 16, you had yourself at 24, and you can craft a narrative where I had the ambition at 16 and I realized the dream at 24, whatever the ages are. Mm-hmm. Um, Kids don't have that because they're only 16 and there is no 24. So <laughs>
1: it's, it's so true. But, it,
0: but we do that, you know, and the idea is, um, it, it, it's astounding. Um, you know, again, that's a very common question I get from a lot of the parents that I work with. What you asked, I guess, two questions ago was, how did your world open up when things changed? It didn't. Hmm. It was just the clearing that the world could show up in right now was different, which was a very interesting development in my life because you would think as i said that you you know the, the, these ambitions would would take over but it wasn't that it was my now that fundamentally changed i became so cognizant of you know i was the creator of my experience in the now you know and it, it, it affected everything from how i prepped for a hockey game for how i prepped for a test for how i wrote a test for how i dealt with after the game or
1: after the test let's unpack now because yeah. I'm trying to also picture the athletes that I'm working with, what is now for them? So, are we talking about being present? Are we talking about internal dialogue? Are we talking about self-concept? Like, are we just literally talking about you're sitting there in the moment and that is your now? Like, where? How deep do you go with now?
0: With the concept of now, um, you know, language is a profoundly impactful feature of human interaction, and the funny thing is, is that the future and the past only exist in language, as my father always reminded me. The more that you choose to discuss the future and the past, the more that you're choosing to distance yourself from what's happening right now. Mm. And I don't want to come across as someone who's saying that, you know, planning is irrelevant or assessing past mistakes is irrelevant. That's not what I'm saying. But when I talk about the now, let me give you an example and you and I have actually talked about this on a multitude of occasions Um, we are right now in a crisis when it comes to physical activity in young kids the number of parents who I have reaching out to me explaining that they're concerned about the state that their child is going to be in when they're 30 years of age right now when they're 17 is shocking and One of the funny things is they look to me to provide some sort of either motivation or inspiration. Because just like yourself, Martin, I've always committed myself to a life of fitness. Um, I hold the position that the human body is a gift. And the more capable I can make it, the more I can flesh out of my experience of life. Mm -hmm. And that's a position I hold. And the funny thing is, is a lot of people who, you know, see you in the gym every day, they think like, oh, Martin and Johnny, they're in the gym, they're trying to get jacked, or they're trying to increase their mobility, trying to do the splits, whatever, right? The funny thing is, is I think what gets you and I into the gym every day has nothing to do with getting jacked and has nothing to do with, you know, increasing mobility. And I think it has everything to do with the way it impacts our day in that moment. Oh, yeah. And I think that that is one of the more profound realizations that I've had, when it comes to the concept of now after, you know, having gone through school and undergone my transformation as a young man. Um, in the context of youth, when I was 18 and focusing on this idea of now, it was, you know, let me give you an example that 18-year-old Johnny Castles would have applied to the concept of now. Um, don't think about trying to commit Division One at all. Focus on your next practice. Focus on your next shift. Mm -hmm. Take your games one shift at a time. Don't worry about the third period or whether you're going to get on the power play on the first shift of the game. Don't worry about the physics test in six weeks when you're sitting in a lecture right now. Taking the notes that you need to take that are going to benefit you for that test. That's sort of what I mean by that. And, you know, you mentioned, you know, an internal dialogue. That was a huge part of it. That was a massive part of what I had to do, was self-talk self talk myself. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, okay, Johnny, let's not get distracted by the fact that the teacher said the test in six weeks is going to be hard. Focus on the lecture now. That's all you can impact is that now. You can't impact the test in six weeks, no matter what you do. Mm-hmm. In this moment right now, there's nothing you can do about that test in six weeks. So why would we muster the emotional energy to to, to worry about it, to create anxiety about it?
1: Do you see that that control of the internal dialogue is something that is slowly slipping in, yeah. in youth? Yes. It's, you know, one of the most,
0: as an, as an adult male, and I think you can probably empathize with this, especially in the culture we live in. Everything's so comparative. Mm. And I'm sure, you know, I'm, I'm sure there's a lot of entrepreneurs out there. You know, they go on Instagram or they go on Facebook and they see another entrepreneur who's, launched this book, or has done an interview with this person, or has been invited to speak uh, at this event. And there's that sense of anxiety that you you really, you feel. And one of the most empowering distinctions, and you and I have talked about this, is the separation between your mind and yourself. Mm -hmm. And two separate words, yourself. Going back to that idea of heart mental hardware, your mind operates very much independently of you. And on a fundamental level, it's a crucial, you know, it manages your heart rate, it detects threats, and then secretes hormones that, you know, dilate your arteries and allow you to run faster or fight better, right? Those sort of things. But in the context of this world, that those mechanisms can be incredibly disempowering.
1: Mm.
0: And one of the most, I guess, I don't even want to say alleviating, because that's the wrong word. But being able to take and place a context around some of these emotional reactions you have, when you can understand that the mind is operating separate to yourself, it makes it less anxiety-inducing. Gotcha. Does that make sense? Yep. The idea that when you get that feeling, like if I asked you, Martin, stop talking, you could do that. If I asked you to stop thinking, you couldn't do that. Mm-hmm. The thoughts always persist. And I think that's a very clear example of how the mental machinery is always operating. And that's not to say you want to create an enemy out of your mind. Agreed. But what you want to do is create a context for those things to show up where they aren't anything
1: more than just mental machinery at work. Yeah. And that's something that I have also written here and I'm surprised that we haven't gotten into it. But I think that you introduced me to the concept of context. Yeah. And... Creating space for yourself or some, for someone else. And now they're responsible for that space. Yep. Hands off. What do you do with it? And all of a sudden now you create context around something that you are a victim of. Create a little space for context. Now you're you're responsible for the space. What do you do with it? Oh, my gosh, it was wild. So the context piece is so huge in in everything, regardless of whether it's sport, academics, home life, internal dialogue of just things that are, you know, context around all of this stuff is critical. And a lot of us are are lacking context, right?
0: Totally. It's, It's, again, a fundamental distinction that I think so many kids and athletes could benefit from. Um, You and I talked about this, uh, this distinction between context and content. Mm. And again, if you don't have the distinction, the words don't mean anything. But the best metaphor I could construct is context is like your apartment and content is like the way you arrange the furniture. Um, Too many people get focused on the content. The beautiful thing about context is you can change the shape of your apartment if you're willing to buy into that. Now, yeah. I know to, to anyone listening, they're like, Johnny must have smoked his working <laughs> stocks on his way over here. If he's speaking like this, but it's the idea that um, you are at source of your experience and the context within which the clearing within which you hold that experience dictates the level of quality that shows up.
1: Mm-hmm. Can you, uh, let's, let's say that again, Johnny, because okay. that, that shit's deep.
0: Well, let me add. Yeah, the idea is that we are all at source. We are all the creators of our experience. We are the projectors in the movie theater. We are not the screen. We are the projectors. And as those creators of experience, you have a context within which you make a choice that you hold that experience, a clearing, if you will. And the way in which you choose to hold that clearing is going to strongly impact the quality of the experience that shows up brilliant it's 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 and the thing is is it's funny because working with adults you and i can talk about this and we have a context for that type of languaging to show up working with young athletes like you do or you know kids students who are all you know coincidentally a lot of the kids a lot of you know student-athletes that languaging doesn't show up for them. Hmm. And that is one of the biggest challenges we face um, as people trying to enfranchise youth to take accountability and just participate on their own terms for their own love of life, right? Mm-hmm. Is to be able to language it in a way that's accessible. Yeah. And the one thing that going back, and I know we've probably brought this book up about 10 times, <laughs> but I think you'll agree with me, The language is very accessible, and they're short, three to four page mini books within this larger book. Which, as an adolescent, I mean, especially as an athlete, like a four page, I can do that. That's the back of the cereal box; like that's no problem. But you hand me a three hundred page book that has fifty page chapters or six, you know, six fifty page sections. That's not gonna not gonna work for me. Yeah, it's heavy, but it's the accessibility that I think is one of our biggest challenges: is being able to language it in a way that really resonates. With the kids of today, who don't necessarily have that same context that you and I do for Mm -hmm. appreciating that,
1: and this sounds like high performance hippie. This sounds crazy, ladies and gentlemen. I found this a year ago, so like in no way, shape, or form are are we the Dalai Lamas here. (laughs) You know, Johnny's (laughs) a little bit more enlightened and connected to this than I am, but like I'm still chewing on this, and I'm 33. If only I knew this, if only someone had brought this to my attention, and and that's not a slight on my parents or my mentors or my coaches or anything like this, this is some deep stuff that for whatever reason has eluded human coaching for a long time. It doesn't exist in the education system. It it, it clearly does not exist in current sports because we're so infatuated with the outcome. So... I want to talk to you, Johnny, about the grind because I think that is a great way of of really shedding light on what it is that we just spoke about that just sounds totally nuts and and far out. The whole concept of the grind, that I'm putting the time in, I'm holding on to the story that I'm putting the time in. Very often it has nothing to do with quality and has everything to do with quantity because by me putting the quantity in, now it shows up like i am doing it and and i'm putting the time in so that other people see that i'm putting the time in so i'm going to set you up for for a grand slam here talk to me about what is it what's this philosophy that you've come up with regarding what it how it shows up from the stands and how's it shows how it shows up from the field
0: you know it's really interesting um this concept of sort of on the court or on the ice or whatever sport metaphor you want to use, and in the stands, so much of what we do in life is narrated from the stands. And one of the, I think conversationally, one of the best examples I've, you know, I've thought of, and we just used a conversation was, you know, talking about Kobe Bryant, you know, shooting hoops till they turn the lights off. From the stands, there's a story that gets created that Kobe was explicitly in that gym shooting hoops because he wanted to get better and he was going to shoot hoops whether they left the lights on or not. And that narrative supports that idea of the grind. He put in his time. He was in the gym. And that narrative, though, only shows up when you're looking from the stands because I guarantee you Kobe Bryant had absolutely... And I don't want to speak for Kobe. I just have the utmost respect for him as an athlete. And you know, um, I don't think it would have shown up for him that way. Mm-hmm. It just, you know, it just was. That's what he did. And one of the funny things is, is that when we talk about this idea of the grind and people putting in time, it's very similar to that gym conversation that you and I just had. We don't grind it out at the gym ever. I don't, I don't have to grind it out at the gym, and I don't think you do either. It's only from the context of in the audience watching from afar that that idea of the grind shows up. Because what is the grind? And you know what? I want to set you up here because you sent me an incredibly, be- it was beautifully constructed about what the grind was. And I don't know if you remember it, and we won't, have to- we won't be able to pull it up, but it was something to the effect of, Martin, that the grind is a narrative purely created for the purpose of making you right when it comes to your gym time or your time at the office that's it's 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 a it's a languaging thing that lets you be right and suddenly you almost get the opportunity to watch yourself from the stands but you know as well as i do if you're playing volleyball and you're thinking about how it looks from the stands you're not going to win too many games yeah you know what i mean and that's the culture we live in and it's I think, profoundly disempowering mm-hmm. that we emphasize how does it look from the stance? Who gives a shit? Let's focus on what's going on on the court. Yeah, And that distinction, like the grind is such a perfect example, Martin, because it's so sad because you miss out on so much of the value that can be had from the experience when you're actually on the court. Yeah. But, you know, uh, you and I talked about the example uh, of leadership. Most great leaders probably don't consciously think, all right, now I'm leading. I'm telling <laughs> you. You know what I mean? The, the moment where they had the leadership passes and they might say, oh, fuck, I was leading. Yep. It was only from the stands that the leadership occurred that someone narrating from the stands was able to effectively say, that guy, that's a leader. You know, Mark Messier, game six, when he said, we will game six, we will win game six against the New Jersey Devils in 94. That was crazy. It was an elimination game. And everyone was like, look at this leadership. There was no leadership for Messier in that. <laughs> he was. Yeah, he just he just was. He was. He just was. That, That's what came naturally to him. That was the experience of hockey for him, and that's what he did. There was no, wow, this is really going to play well. You know what I, I you know, This is going to play well with the audience. No, that's just, that's moose.
1: Yeah. You know
0: what I mean? And I think that that distinction, you know, is... Somewhat similar to the one I created for myself when I was 18, that idea of being on the screen versus being an audience member. It's not an identical idea, but it's a a concept that could lead to that.
1: So let's let's go into, because we focus on the stands, and, and it's so important to reiterate. When you're on the field of play and you're acting in a way that shows up for the person in the stands who's watching to please them... There's no flow. None. You're not playing for the love of the game. Yeah. You're playing for a reason that calibrates so low, and really doesn't allow a lot of opportunity to play well. Because you're trying, you 100%. know, if I'm playing for ten thousand, you know, let's just say for the Super Bowl, eighty thousand people, however many watching live. If I'm playing to for the approval of eighty thousand independent people, what are the odds of me succeeding? Incredibly Incredibly old, but probably infinitesimally like zero. (laughs) Versus there is no stance. I am in the moment. I am incredibly present in the now. And I just am. And who I've trained to be, not for other people, but for myself, what I love, the story that I'm trying to bring through my actions on the field in the world as a human being. That moment of, of no thought, of, of no mind, you are just in it, has absolutely nothing to do with how it looks.
0: 100%. You couldn't, I mean, what do we call that? That's, people, athletes call it being in the zone. Right. And I love how you said no mind, because the concept, in my, in my opinion, of assessing from the audience, assessment, mm-hmm. is very much the mind. Assessment is very much the mind. And the funny mm. thing is, that's where I think there's so much value. The funny thing is, I, you know, that expression in the zone has always kind of irked me a little bit because it kind of just.
1: Oh, get, in the jo- get in the zone, Johnny. Get in the zone. But <laughs> yeah, wait, but how, the, how
0: the heck do you get in the zone? <laughs> but, like, that is, that's one of the most beautiful things of sport is that you get the opportunity to be in that space of pure experience. All your positions get dropped. All of your opinions don't mean shit, mm-hmm. and it's just you in the game. Mm-hmm. And when you're really in it, as you said, whether there's 10 people or 10,000 people in the stands, it doesn't matter. Yeah. And those moments are potentially going to be even more sparse with the next generation of kids based when you look on the enrollment rates in team sports. It's a really sad reality. You look at hockey, there's less and less kids playing hockey. Um, I'm sure you could speak to soccer and volleyball, but, you know, e-sports, and, and I, I can't speak to that. I've never, I haven't, you, you know. Go,
1: go with your gut because it's true. Yeah. Unfortunately. Like,
0: yeah, it, it seems like we may end up in a position where a lot of the physical sports we play get usurped by e-sports, and I don't know if you get that same opportunity to shut your, there's this There's this physicality to sport where the movement that you undertake Isn't based on, well, what are they going to think? It's something so pure to what's inside you, Mm -hmm. which is, I want to win. Yeah. Well, I love this game. You know what I mean? I want to, I just, it's not that winning is everything. You know, um, it's not. But there's a purity of cause that shows up on the field of play that I think is so astoundingly powerful that what our goal should be is manifesting that purity of cause in a way that we can direct it in a corporate business meeting, a -hmm. science test, a math class, a history class, dinner with our girlfriend, whatever the context may be. That's where I think there's so much value in sport because it's the one arena that consistently allows people to experience that purity of cause that's unique to them.
1: Yep. Yeah, absolutely. And so I'll, I'll rift on two things there. A, the autonomy is a hundred percent video games. And so it's attractive. And so as sport gets more and more competitive at younger and younger ages and and gets more and more reformed, more and more high performance happening younger, therefore there's more coaches involved and therefore there's less autonomy for kids. And so the easy choices, I'm not having fun anymore and therefore I'm going to go play video games because I'm in full control of that experience. Now, what you get from that is a lot less because the physical side, the understanding of care, being present for a teammate that's relying on you in person by your physical actions, there isn't something that's incredibly important there that, that just unfortunately will never show up in video games. Yeah. Two is this whole love piece. Where... Where does love show up for you, Johnny?
0: You know, love for me is probably one of the most misunderstood words in human history. And that doesn't discredit it. But I think love, I'll say this, that love makes the world go round. Mm. But I think what people attach to the word love can sometimes be very dangerous. I think love is one of the most profound forces in human existence. I mean, the very fact that, you know, hundreds of years of musical compositions have attempted to capture this idea but still necessarily haven't is a testament to how profoundly it it affects us, it impacts us. What do I think love is, you know, or where, where does it fit into this? Mm-hmm. That's a very, it's a tough question. I think that love... You know, reasons, the only thing reasons do is help you sound reasonable, (laughs) right? You know what I mean? And and, and I'm going to have to give Dr. Smotherman credit for that one because it's so beautifully articulated. Um, I think love is that sense of empowerment you have from participating in something when reasons and positionalities and opinions don't have to be involved, Mm. Let me, if you can explain it, you probably don't love it. If you need it, you, pro- you can't need something you love. I think that love fits into that. When people say they love playing sports, if I ask you why you love playing sports, you probably can't answer that. Or why you love your partner in life. If you can explain it, there's probably a bit of an issue there. <laughs> I think love is that ability that human ability to do something without a rationalization without a reason without a position to support it mm. that's so i think what love does is you want to talk about a context i think it has the opportunity to create an immense context for action without any of that mind machinery bullshit that people use to motivate their actions right why are you going to the gym because i want to be slim in 6 weeks no i don't i don't there is no as soon as you attach the because, I think that's where you've lost your love. Mm-hmm. Or because I love it. That's and that it. just is. That just is. Yeah. So, And that's where I think love fits into this, mm-hmm. is it's that force within human beings that really transcends the mental machinery. That's where I think the mind, you know, if we want to personify it, gets fucking pissed <laughs> off. Yeah. Because no matter what positions show up, what beliefs, there is no... The, the, the none of that shows up in the presence of true love mm-hmm. What true, when, when true love is present it, it just is
1: yeah brilliant man love it not to use it overuse it but I love it <laughs> Yeah. because uh, we, we're not we don't talk it doesn't show up in sport as much anymore I think there's a movement a couple guys changing the game project Reed Maltby John O'Sullivan down to the states they're trying to bring the love back into the game they're trying to give the game back to kids. And yeah. now I'm using the, the vessel of sport to talk about this, but you know, I think we've moved away from sport being sport a, a way to, to develop great human beings yeah. and it's turned into, are you a winner? or Are you a loser? Yep. Did you score a goal? Well, no. Well then you're <laughs> terrible. And, and now all of a sudden, as we get younger and younger, what I call it, the race to the bottom to find talent or develop talent, there's no coping mechanisms to support the increased pressure at that younger age, and now all of a sudden, identity builds internally for this child that their worth has a hundred percent to do with their actions. Whether they were able to live into this or they didn't do that, now all of a sudden, that's the love they they receive, and so we're. Hopefully, turning that around right now as we start to bring love back into sport and bring context that, that I ha- haven't seen anywhere else. But this is just such a really interesting conversation, Johnny, because I'm sure there's a lot of people listening going, "What are these guys smoking?"
0: And yeah, that you know, <laughs> and, and it's kind of sad. You know, it, it's really funny um, as you were as you were talking about that. You know, I was working with a student you know a few weeks ago who was sort of discrediting his lack of achievement in math by saying, well, I don't want to be a mathematician, so what's the point? And the funny thing is, is if you analogize that to sport, you know, when you're a young kid playing sport, if the only incentive for participation was making it to the pros mm-hmm. or making it to the Olympics or whatever the sort of grand ambition was, I th- you're losing out oh, on, yeah. on, on so much of the possibility that can show up in sport you know, people ask me, you know, I, I went to a, you know a prep school in Toronto, uh, Upper Canada College, which was a phenomenal learning experience. But I think perhaps what I learned or when I learned most about myself was when I took two years off to play junior A hockey after high school, where I kind of really got, I really got acclimated to the idea of I was the maker of my own success. It was a meat market. You know, when you play hockey at school, for example, they're invested in you as a student and an athlete. You go to play, you leave home to go play hockey, and suddenly all they care about you is as an athlete. And to me, it was so interesting that there was this world that was so pragmatic for kids who were 16 years of age, where if you contribute on the ice, you're in. If not, get out of here. And I think you lose so much of the value when you distill that approach to younger kids, you know, as you said, you know, kids who are 12, 13 years of age now are training like NHLers did, to use hockey as an example, 15 years ago, because that's now what the context of sport has shown up for them as, is I play hockey because I want to be a professional, Mm -hmm. and I think if that's the context within which sport gets held, it's inevitably doomed, because A, the success rate's of kids who are going to play pro, as you know, in volleyball and
1: hockey, I'm sure the statistics are similar. They're minimal. I think. Yeah. I think the amount of people that get to be pro is is maybe four. Or no, I think a scholarship is four percent. Yeah, of of people that get paid to go to school through yeah. sport, and I think that go pro is like
0: 0. 0.9 percent. If that is what the context of sport becomes, those success rates are going to resonate too loudly. To continue to drive the process forward, mm. if we can redefine the context of sport as such, you know, you you ran a, a class recently, a mastery class, mm-hmm. and you and I talked about it, and it seems, you know, you were talking about specifically in the world of volleyball, you know, life beyond sport, not necessarily not training kids to be better athletes, but creating a cognizance that what you're learning right now is not just for the ages of sixteen to twenty. The idea that, you know, the way you move out on the court, you want to be moving in a way that's going to ensure that you can do this for years to come. Mm -hmm. It created an applicability for this movement piece that transcended the idea of just going pro or winning games, which to me was incredibly beautiful. And I think more pieces like that, that, uh, you know, enlarge the context of sport to be something that's more than just I want to go pro Mm -hmm. is where I want to win. Don't get me wrong, I love the competitive element of sport, and I think you do too, Martin.
1: hundred percent. I think it's arguably one of the more important things, but when we make that the thing and the only thing, we lose out on all of the rest, which are arguably more important than the competition to begin with.
0: Exactly. You know, that was a funny thing. I was, I was reading an article the other day about how in the 80s, a lot of New York banks were hiring uh, professional athletes, retired professional athletes, because of a lot of the lessons that they would have been inculcated with as pro athletes teamwork uh the concept of sacrifice um acknowledging that you are a part of something bigger Mm -hmm. team sports do a wonderful job of that and i think if we can recontextualize sport as a vessel for as you said making better human beings and not just winning losing or going pro i think you're going to see so much more value from the kids who are or rather you're going to see so much more value being derived from the kids who participate in it yeah and it's, yeah. it's just sad to see it go that way because i can i'm sure you were the same way we talked about it when you were 14 years of age and you were playing volleyball or i was you know 14 years of age playing hockey i wasn't really i wasn't thinking about the nhl no clue i had no i loved the idea of going to the rink seeing my friends and then doing something with them that was really meaningful in our minds that we were able to give ourselves to something bigger than ourselves That was the beautiful part of it is that you Mm -hmm. can take these like, you know, as a kid, you're selfish because your world's so small because you don't know anything. And yet here comes this profound force of team sports that can take these, you know, 20 snot nosed, egocentric little kids and get them to immediately buy into something that's that's so much bigger than them, which is the concept of team. Yeah. And I think in that lesson, in just that one lesson, there's so much more value than just use the word the grind of trying to go pro yeah and i think that if we lose that former lesson and the latter supersedes it we've missed a glorious opportunity to acquaint the kids of today with some very profound lessons that are going to shape them as young men and young women in their 20s and into their 30s for the rest of their lives
1: totally totally and there's a concept that I've been building out for me, and it, it's it's getting clearer and clearer in every conversation I have, especially this one. I just see it where, you know, how that test shows up for you, how the test in school shows up for one of your students, the test on the field, the test at home, having integrity. All of those things were one and the same. Yep. And it's just the now. That's it. And so how can we manipulate sport in a positive way to, to allow youth to allow a person an individual to show up better for them in the now yeah without narrative without the pressure of this or at least learning how to handle those things because they exist we can't cut them out yep. you know as, for instance at a, at a coach's symposium this weekend we're talking about everything and you know a part of handling parents in sport is you can't get rid of the parent you know that they're they are a part of the problem or the solution, whatever, they're a part of it. Totally. Removing them from the equation is a non-reality. Okay, so understanding that, how do we get everything to work together, right? And so all of this that you can't cut things out, they are there. The physiological response that is, is there. How you use it or your inability to use it to increase performance or how it impacts your performance in a negative way is your understanding of it. Yes. All of these things is an understanding, man.
0: So fundamentally, when you boil it down, it's, it's perception.
1: Right? And so, you know, Mastery Camp for me was, was giving youth the keys. Here's seven hours of education beyond just do this. this is, here's the why. And here's the profound exploration of that. And what I believe to be true for it, but it may not be the same for you. But it's for you to define it and take it and explore it and run with it. And I think we not a, enough times am I seeing that. It's, it's I'm going to visit this person. I'm going to get the specific skill or expertise. And when I'm not with them, I no longer have that. So I need to visit them because it's there. Versus teach the person to critically think, not teach them a certain piece of education. And then all of a sudden, they're now educating
0: themselves 24-7. 100%. And that's, you know... I think you could make a case that's the difference between context and content, mm. and that what you're trying to acquaint kids with is a context, whereas other people are just providing content. And the one thing I've always, I've always tried to tell kids is that I can't give you a, I can't give you a recipe. And if I did give you one, it would be useless because all you would do is live and die with it. Right. There would be no context for that recipe to show up in a meaningful way like it did for me because we're different people. We have different life experiences. I'm a different age, right? You've got different parents. There's so many fundamental differences in who we are that my recipe would not show up in the same way in that clearing as it did for me. For my student, that recipe would not show up in the same way. So I think it's so refreshing To hear that in sport, where it's so easy to get wrapped up in content, you know, Um, because it's so physical. It's so, the skill sets are so overt. You know, if I take hockey, you know, for shooting the puck, body checking, skating, edge work, all this stuff, it's so overt. And you need those skills to participate at a high level. But where I think you get the most value is where you can create a context for those skills to show up in a way that are meaningful to the player and not just a recipe, do this when this happens okay yeah. there, there's no there's no jam
1: well the creativity is something that we're, we're starting to see less and less where that person has some really interesting moves, but because it doesn't fit into that coach's model, it's bad yep or it's risky or it's just, no it's creative right? and and there's a more space for creativity in sport like I invented a move that I never brought out cuz I was too scared to but I wanted to hit from the right side of the volleyball court with the back of my hand. So all of a sudden now I have 100 I can use both sides of my hand. I can swing and hit cross court, Johnny, I'm going to give you a little volleyball side, but I'm I can learning, come I'm I'm I, can, right I I can come cross body with the inside of my palm, but if I flip my palm around to 180 degrees, I can now hit in a way that my shoulder allows that couldn't have happened because yeah my palm was the opposite way so i actually wanted to turn from the right side and hit down the line with the back of my hand this never happened before yeah and if you steal that, whoever's listening and steal this <laughs> thing but, no. but i was scared to do it <clears throat> i was too scared yeah and, and that's a, a regret now that i think about it in this moment is that i just should have gone with it man because it felt good when i was able to do it it connected well yeah but i was too scared to do it in competition and, and that's the evolution of sport is someone who's willing to go with the creative spirit and, and harness that and and just for the love of the game, build it out, not for the coach. And I'm, gonna, I'm on a bit of a tangent, but last one for me, talking to the coaches this weekend and parents, if, if you see a child on the court and every point they're looking to the stands or looking to the coach for approval, I believe the coach or the parents are, are in the way. And it's easy to spot that kid.
0: Oh, and if you that kid's in the stands. That kid's not on the court. Right. That kid is in the stands. So you keep going. No, that's exactly
1: it. So to bring it around and, and where you know all of this conversation, if you think that what we're talking about is only sport, then I, I guess we haven't done a great job of communicating it, but everything that we're talking about is life. Yep. All of these things show up with you wherever you are. Totally. And that's where... You know, you're using your skill set, incredible skill set and, and perspective to get kids, to get youth to subscribe to, they can be a better academic student, but when they go home, when they show up on a, on a court somewhere or a playing field, guess what? Same person.
0: It's this, and it's the same skill set, too. That notion of you showing, whether, you know, we use the, use the terminology on the court, but in the desk, whatever, you know, seated in the whatever, at the desk. Like, it's all the same core concepts. And if you really want to boil it down, what we're looking to do, and I say work because it's you and I, is getting kids to participate on their own terms. Mm. You know, if you're playing, like, I remember we were talking about this. The worst time I ever had in hockey was after I started talking to, like, U.S. colleges and I started playing for scouts in the stands. Right. I was a bad player. I was, again, I was not on the ice. I was in the stands. And when it comes to school, it's the same idea. Although the parents aren't watching, kids are writing tests either for the parents or for the teacher, or for no one. There's no they, they, you know, self does not show up in that pursuit. Hmm. And when the self is missing from whatever it is—volleyball, hockey, school—it's going to be an exercise characterized by apathy beautiful. And there's going to be a wholehearted lack of participation. Yeah. And that lack of participation is where that's the problem. That's the question, so to speak. I know I didn't phrase it as a question, but that's the question I've chosen to devote my life to trying to contribute towards. Mm. The funny thing is is I'm not going to solve it. I don't think I am. But I think there's so much more power in living within a question. Than just getting an answer. Yeah. And that to me is a really rewarding journey. That's like when I played, when you play sports, you're never going to figure out sports. But what makes it so fun is that it's a question you can live within. Yeah. And I think that finding kids a question they can perhaps live within <clears throat> might be a step in the right direction to enfranchising them to participate on their terms and yeah. not their parents or their teachers or. The friends, yeah, because when when you know as you get older, as you know, each that layer of support dissipates with each stage in life, and you have to be able I don't think you have to, but I think there's a lot more possibility available to you if you make the choice to do things
1: on your terms <laughs> that's so good. Johnny, we're on a mission, buddy. This, this has been a long time coming. I'm stoked that finally this platform is up. I'm stoked to have you here early on. We're going to release some stuff in Toronto. Vince Luciani, Legacy Coaching SCU2, where we're all kind of coming guy. together. Vince, we love you, man. <laughs> we're coming together to create bigger context Yes, for youth. And and once again, it's not about us. Like, I I so deeply care about not making this about me. Like, I'm to a point of a fault. Yeah. Because this is not about you. This is not about me. As much as I want to see Johnny in a leather jacket and a mullet talking to all these kids. Like, <laughs> I want to see it. But it's not about us. It's not about us.
0: Uh, you're abs- all we can do is invite them to consider the possibility on their terms. Yeah. It has nothing to do with us. Yeah. As, you know, as I was saying, parents, parents very often ask, can you give him sort of a, a recipe? I can't, because then that makes it about me. And I am not your son or your daughter. Mm-hmm. And that's not because I don't want to help, but that's just not a sustainable mechanism that's going to yield that emotional satisfaction that drives participation forward. If you're not emotionally satisfied, you are not going to participate. And I think yeah. that's, you couldn't have put it better, Martin, it can't be about us because as soon as it becomes about us, the participation that the kids exhibit is on our terms. Yeah. And if it's on our terms, it's not going to be, in my opinion, it's not sustainable yeah. because what we're teaching kids is not something that'll last for the next two years or the next, you know, get them to the end of the high school or get them to the end of their collegiate career as an athlete. These are skills that you are going to carry with you till the day that you die. Yeah. And I think that's where there's the true value in all this. But in order for it to be sustained for that long, it can't be about
1: us. Well, the the platform that is the off ball, um, you know, is, is a philosophy. And I, and I see you and and the other people that will be interviewed and, and shared as people that are living their true selves, that are connected to that. And they're not enforcing it on other people. They're, they're not making it about them. You're just connected to it. and. We spoke about this a while ago. Like, how can we create this positive wave of influence? And it's not about telling people to do things. It's about representing what we stand for, and and letting them other people connect with the possibility that, that's showing up for us. And and maybe it works for them. Maybe it doesn't. But we have to be true to ourselves. And so I see you doing your thing, making it work and, and you're living so authentically, which is beautiful. And the more that we can engage and share this in an ideal world is an invitation for others to then participate as well. And so this is about us leading not from the stands, but it's leading from the field because it doesn't show up as anything other than us bringing what we love to be, or what we believe to be true, what we love doing, just showing up for ourselves.
0: Absolutely right. And that's it's it's almost quixotic in its in its ambition. But as I said, it's a question that I think you and I have, have have chosen to live within that can be profoundly impactful if others are invited to consider the possibility that there's some value here.
1: Yeah, let's end it there. Johnny, that, that was so wicked, man. Thank that was you. amazing, Martin. I can't
0: thank you enough for having me on. It's, it's always such a delight. And it's, uh, as I said, it's a pleasure and an honor to be here. And it was, it was nice not having that five-minute timer. You know? yeah. we, we could really jam here. I think we're an
1: hour and 21 minutes, so we, oh, we went a, a little bit past it. But to everyone out there, Johnny Castles operates a tutoring, but as you experienced over the last hour plus, it is so much more than just straight-up education or how do people take in information and deliver it. So, Johnny Castles, where can people find you on the internets and physically here in Toronto?
0: So uh, we have a website, castlestutoring.com. We've got a pretty rock and Instagram. I'm a big fan, uh, and I hope... The followers, are, followers are as well.
1: <laughs> music yeah. Mondays, music, Monday, music man. Mondays. We got to
0: get back on those. Maybe we'll do a, a Scorpions tribute. You know what I mean? Rocky like a hurricane. <laughs> and uh, in Toronto, we are uh, on Yonge Street, sort of the artery of Toronto, uh, just south of Eglinton, so uh, sort of midtown Toronto. And it's, uh, as I said, it's it's a mecca of participation but you know as i said to to get to walk through the doors you got to do it on your own terms love it love
1: it what what age group of of youth or or students are you working with
0: so some of the youngest kids we have are actually in grade four and all the amazing i didn't know was that young Yeah, really young kids and and with that comes a whole slew of challenges just because you're not just dealing with contextual like you know uh, differences you're dealing with language differences in terms of their vocabulary isn't fully developed um, all the way up till uh, our oldest student is 26 so uh, graduate students and it's as I said it's been an incredibly rewarding journey and uh, just you know these kids who allow me to be a part of it is something I'm so thankful for each and every day
1: beautiful right on okay Johnny we're out
0: all right rock on thank you so much